Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Before Snapchat stories, before YouTube, in the 1990s there were a select few who were experimenting with streaming video and interactive media on the web. There was MarkCubansBroadcast.com, of course, which sold to Yahoo at the height of the bubble and gave birth to America's favorite billionaire. But to me, the more interesting of these pioneers was Pseudo.com. Today, we're going to talk with one of the co-founders of Pseudo.com, Dennis Adama. Dennis is one of those dot-com OGs who's still doing interesting stuff today. And at the end of the episode, we talk a bit about virtual reality and his latest startup, Space Out VR. But the majority of the episode is about Pseudo, and the realities and practicalities of launching a streaming video and content company in the dial-up era. I had always been vaguely aware of the pseudo-story, mostly because it was one of those poster kids for dot-com era excess, a company that blew through a ton of money before going belly-up, and in the case of pseudo, blowing through a ton of money while being flashy, shamelessly self-promotional, and just, quite frankly, wild. It's really not an exaggeration to say that a lot of the public image of dot-com craziness, of excess, especially in New York, is due to the reputation that pseudo.com got in the media. In the show notes, I have links to two articles from the time that will describe for you what I'm talking about. Since Pseudo is a little forgotten today, what I'm going to do is actually I'm going to give you a little more background than I usually do. I'm going to read to you a couple pages from the forthcoming book that will describe Pseudo. This is from what is currently uh, chapter 11. And I'll start right here. Slashdot.org media critic John Katz said, quote, if there's one thing New York is good at, it's hype. And if one company exemplified hype as a business plan, it was Pseudo.com. Pseudo was the brainchild of Joshua Harris, a technology early adopter who had previously founded the tech research company Jupiter Communications. Pseudo's stated goal was quite simple, to bring television online. To this end, Pseudo invested in studios and creative talent to produce dozens of different shows, about 240 hours of original programming a month that it broadcast over the web from its Soho headquarters. The shows that Pseudo produced ran the gamut of subjects from sports to video games to music to talk shows. Piggybacking off of Real Network's streaming media technology, Pseudo combined video with online chat rooms to create programming that was self-consciously interactive. The on-air talent mixed freely with the viewers who lurked in the chat rooms and often impacted what was happening on the air in real time. Like a public access channel on hallucinogenics, Pseudo claimed it was establishing an entirely new medium that would be like the second coming of television 
but two-way and interactive, not passive. It pioneered the televising of online video game competitions, branched out to real news coverage of the 2000 Republican National Convention, and broke traffic records for online streaming when it covered the Mars Polar Lander in 1999. Founder Harris was not shy about his ambitions for Pseudo. Quote, My merry band and I are attempting to become the first internet pop stars. He said that he considered his competition to be, quote, Ted Turner, Michael Eisner, Rupert Murdoch, and Sumner Redstone when he's not sleeping. But if producing television for the 21st century was the stated goal of Pseudo, the delivery method seemed to be a 24-7, never-ending party. Harris and Pseudo became, briefly, ground zero for the New York City art scene, and Pseudo's regular events and parties put Pixelon's Las Vegas bash to shame by rivaling the artiness and excess of Andy Warhol's factory. Harris actually said, quote, I think I'll be bigger, actually, than Andy Warhol, end quote. Often dressed up as his alter ego, a horror movie clown named Lovey, Harris claimed that throwing parties was his personal art form, and he put himself front and center at most events. The parties were the main calling card as well as the primary content for Pseudo's streaming channels. Many who attended came to suspect that partying might actually be the raison d'etre for Pseudo's entire existence. The Pseudo soirees featured DJs, poetry and art, but also computers and video games. As a reporter from New York Magazine described one typical scene, quote, A parade of performance artists took the stage including a bikini-clad dancer with a fake dagger and blood, a fire-eater, a bondage and domination act, and the mangina, whose act revolves around a fake plastic vagina he wears strapped to his crotch. Videos were projected across the wall. DJ Spooky, DJ Shadow, and others took turns spinning. And in the VIP room, black-clad female vampires served sweet drinks with names like opium, end quote. The raves and parties took place inside Pseudo's actual offices, the cavernous three floors of lofts at 600 Broadway on the corner of Houston Street. Pseudo employees would plug away during the day, producing the television shows like 88 Hip Hop, where a young Eminem got his first on-screen video performance, Justice for Brawl, and Cherry Bomb, and then roll their computers and cameras into the corners in order to make room for the night's festivities. The line between work and rave was so blurry as to be actively ignored. It was apparently not unusual to discover pseudo-workers having sex out in the open. Food and alcohol flowed freely at all hours, and drugs were commonplace. One pseudo-executive producer remembered, quote, 6 p.m., that's when you could smoke weed. At 6 p.m., the intercom would light up, code green, code green, and we'd run down to the third floor and just smoke our brains out and then go back up to work, end quote. Pseudo paid for more than one employee, 
to go to rehab when unspoken lines of decorum were crossed, but that didn't mean that partying slowed down. Indeed, as the turn of the millennium approached, Josh Harris intensified the orgy. For the entire month of December 1999, he hosted a no-holds-barred blowout called Quiet, where freeloaders were invited to crash in futuristic millennium capsules, tiny living pods that were glorified bunk beds. Once inside, none of the revelers were allowed to leave for the entire month. Food and drink were provided for them, but they also had to agree to be monitored at all times by video cameras installed in every bunk. The stalls around the communal toilets were removed, and the only shower was inside a transparent geodesic dome in the middle of the room so that everyone could watch when you needed to bathe. One gossip writer for the New York Post dispatched to report on the event said, quote, I remember that some exhibitionist fat guy with a really tiny penis started taking a shower while dinner was going on. The food was quite good, but I couldn't really enjoy it because some half-naked people who seemed to think they were very important kept dancing on the table, end quote. Quiet, also sometimes referred to as We Live in Public, which I'll talk about uh, in a second, was a true end-of-the-millennium bacchanal, all funded by Harris and the more than $25 million that he was able to raise from the likes of Intel and the Tribune Company, ostensibly to turn Pseudo into a broadcaster for the 21st century. At its height, Pseudo was burning through $2 million a month, producing videos, throwing parties, it all seemed to be similar sides of the same coin. Pseudo deserves credit for being the first to serve the micro-niches of content and interest that now regularly find an audience on sites like YouTube. The first content site to actively court what we call the long tail. And indeed, Harris's instinctive obsession with voyeurism played into the cultural zeitgeist that gave birth to reality television. Harris would state prophetically, quote, I made a deliberate decision to live my life in public. Someday we're all going to. But it's hard to say where the partying stopped and a true serious business began, and that's assuming it ever was a serious business. Nearly a decade later, Harris would declare to the New York Times that, quote, Pseudo was a fake company, and that the whole thing was, quote, a long-form piece of conceptual art. Wild story, huh? So as I mentioned, um, a documentary about Josh Harris and his uh, art experiments came out a couple years ago. It's called We Live in Public. There's a link in the show notes. Um, but also uh, you can rent it now on iTunes if, if you're interested. It's actually really quite good. Uh, as I say, I had only been vaguely aware of the pseudo story before this project. But in researching for the book, I've gotten... Uh, a fair bit of affection for the whole pseudo-project and have become a bit obsessed with preserving at least its legend. Josh Harris and pseudo, whatever you want to say about them, they um, may have been out of control and definitely before their time in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to things like broadband and, and technology in general. But I really think they were onto something, um, ideas that have, that have panned out in, in real tangible ways in our modern life. So, 
saying all that, I am super, super thrilled to have Dennis Adamo on the show today, a guy who was there from the very beginning who can uh, tell you the whole story. So please enjoy this conversation with Dennis Adamo. Dennis Adamo, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, I believe I, I always like to start with people's educational background. Sure. You might be the first person that um, was a fine arts major in college sure. at sure. NYU. That's right. That's right. And, and it's interesting because when the digital for 1.0 rolled around, you know, to me it was a natural evolution in after being a, having a background in art history mm -hmm. and looking at humanity from 8,000 BC to contemporary times. Uh, I felt that this was an extension or an evolution of, of human uh, expression, thought, and culture. So, Well, because correct me if I'm wrong, but in the 80s into the 90s, video and, and multimedia are, are things that art students and artists are starting right. to experiment with in a big way. Yes, as very much so. And, you know, while I was studying art history at NYU, I studied with some of the most profound and famous professors of, of art history. And a lot of our argument in the academia was around whether or not photography is considered art uh, versus painting and sculpture. And those were the arguments then. At the uh, conclusion, when I graduated in, at, in 1994, already the discussion of, of digital photography was very much uh, front and center to, this, to these comments. And uh, this, this, these forms of pixelated kind of color, uh, colorized uh, uh, images and installations started popping up in, in the underground mm -hmm. art scene. So... Um you go to NYU, uh, after you graduate, are you, is, is the goal to be an artist? Do you get into the art scene as well, it were? Well, so uh, that last semester I worked for Christie's, uh, uh -huh. the auction house, and I was a viewing associate at Christie's East. Like, I handled the Barbra Streisand sale. Mm -hmm. And what I realized that I had a long, hard road to make a career in the art world because basically I, as a, an outsider, I was also an art critic. I had been published in, a, in an art catalog for the Colby College of Art. I used to write hmm. about an artist called William Rand, hmm. and I was also uh, kind of uh, being mentored by Rene Ricard, the, the, the famous contemporary writer for Vogue who, who discovered Basquiat and mm -hmm. so forth. So I was kind of very much in that art scene, but I also realized that there was a broader opportunity, especially with the advent of interactive multimedia, which basically blew my mind in 1994. So I got engaged with a company called Vitix, Who's based, who was based in Mexico City, we met at a party and the next day decided to fly to Mexico City because my friend thought that it would be great to have a New York uh, operation. Uh, we were creating Compact Disc Interactive, which was the precursor to DVD. Mm. These were educational titles, K through 12, trilingual. Uh, at the time, millions of TV, for TV resolution, but interactive. And it was a big deal because at the time we only had Laserdisc or CD-ROM was barely ex in existence. And that was around 1994-ish. Right, and um, I've spoken to a couple other people about this, but uh, it's, a, it's a, not a big industry, but it's, it's an industry in New York at the time, this, this creating right. um, multimedia for art purposes, for educational purposes. Right. Um, Voyager is here. Sure. So just if you could just go into that a little bit. Is, is it a sense that um, there's this generation of people working on this, and then when the web comes along, 
that's it's obvious to everyone, oh, we can do what we're already doing, and let's just port it over here to the web. Sure. The, the, one thing about New York at the time, we were very influenced by, by media and media culture, especially the influence of both you know, broadcast, television uh, industry, plus Madison Avenue was strong and, and influencing us on many levels, especially in visual arts and mm -hmm. communications. Uh, those, uh, I think that made a perfect storm and an opportunity for digital art, digital media uh, production and post-production especially to really flourish in this city. I think more so than Hollywood, this town it was really uh, in, you know, embedded in the post-production side. Mm -hmm. So you had massive loft studios all around, and they still are, they mm -hmm. still exist doing the actual post-production of major Hollywood features. So you had that culture right on hand. And there was a good mix with interactive multimedia production. And does that, that bleed time. over into the art community as well? Like Very much, okay. very much. So, you know, I mean, look at the high arts at the time of Nanjun Paik, for mm -hmm, example, yeah, yeah. being a mixed media, but focused on the visual uh, television, see, you know, um, a lot of influence around the music scene uh -huh. so a lot of uh these uh well what i call the electro culture mm -hmm. happened to be consisting of uh multimedia artists who would perform inside of installations that that didn't really exist and there were several major art groups that have come out of that which today really if you looked at burning man the mm -hmm. composition of those elements were all i think born in new york city and that was in the time of the transformation of Brooklyn Williamsburg from an industrial catastrophe to this thriving art scene. Dumbo. Dumbo, yeah. as it all moved out of Soho. Right. Uh, because, you know, you had the postmodern era, which basically destroyed creative culture between the AIDS epidemic, between the e economy falling apart three times. Uh, you know, I think 1987 was the first major crash. Mm -hmm. Well, that basically wiped out the whole gallery scene mm. and caused that whole art, all those artists to basically pick up because rents became expensive or mm. unbearable. There was not enough transactions because I was actually working for an art gallery as a consultant as well while I was at, at NYU. And, um, you know, everything leading up to this digital boom in New York really had to do with a couple of declines in the uh, contemporary art scene and market in New York City, uh, especially downtown. You yeah, know, if yeah. Midtown and, and up, Upper East Side were still very much uh, the uh, bastions of the financial, you know, wonderkind or yuppie good yeah, culture. Yeah, but yeah. here we had, you know, below 14th Street, we had this major influence of media, art, entertainment, and again, all these facilities focused on post-production. And then, you know, you're having universities like ITP program at NYU, including uh, the Tisch School of the Arts, just churning out, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of super motivated young generation of, you know, multimedia artists mm -hmm. who are mm -hmm. fascinated and, and really experimenting quite often with um, analog tools to create digital installations, which was kind of ridiculous. I mean, uh, when I got into multimedia, the, the processor um, was the, pro the top of the line processor for your computer CPU was 44 hertz. Right, right, right. You know, <laughs> now we're talking gigahertz. In the, in the, well, in the 286, yeah. 386 era. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was where we were coming at, out of that. At the time, uh, the authoring platforms were limited to like. Uh, 
a silicon graphics machine. So I'll just t tell you a quick story. The sure. most, one of the most beautiful and incredible events we've, we, we produced at Pseudo was this uh, event called Pseudo Immersion with Merce Cunningham. And actually we borrowed a, from a studio, we borrowed a silicon graphics machine mm -hmm. with a robotic uh, monkey, which was basically a real-time um, uh, ro robot that Merce was able to manipulate and his dancers throughout the space were following that 3D model. Hmm. And the amount of horsepower required to run that in 1995, I think the machine itself was like $60,000. Yeah. You know, and things like that, which, and it's, it was probably like a one gig drive, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, with, with, which today is like basically yeah. a, half an iPhone. So that's, that's, that's what the kind of conditions. Perfect. Um, so I'm, at the, unless I'm yada yadaing over uh, other details that get you to pseudo that sure. are important. Um, I wonder if it's better to, maybe I'll ask, uh, how did you know Josh Harris? So uh, interestingly, another pro side project of mine while I was at NYU was this uh, live jazz poetry concept we came up with called Fish Tank. So it was myself and, and about five other live jazz artists. And the idea was to show up at nightclubs, ha do open mic poetry readings with musicians. Mm -hmm. And it created this really funky, bohemian kind of kooky atmosphere. And these were happening at bars on the Bowery and the Lower East Side. But we also put together a quick little uh, photocopy magazine uh, together that you would basically pay five bucks to enter and you'd get a magazine. Mm -hmm. So uh, myself, Derek Mitchell, Hilkato, Barry Sacramano, Robert Galinsky, uh, Spiro, Pasana, pa, uh, Spiro, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know we were the core bunch. So um, at the time, I traveled right after university. I traveled to Mexico City to go work on that interactive multimedia project. Project. And I was in Mexico City for three months. When I got back, um, everyone was saying, "Hey, Dennis, you have to meet Josh. He's, we're doing a live. We're doing a fish tank at his loft. His new loft. It's empty. It's trash. Let's do it." I'm like, "Who's this Josh guy? What's going on?" So I, 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 at the time, I had written the business plan for to launch this Vidix product in America with uh, Polygram Family Entertainment. They already said yes. We'll take all the titles. So I was just basically. In, in New York, uh, coming back to New York to set up shop, and uh, Polygram canceled CDI. Mm. So Philips moved off the CDI platform within six weeks, all contracts off, all bets are off, just like today in any technology yeah, yeah. Uh, obsolescence situation. And I was kind of still walking around with this business plan, and by August, I met Josh, and I said, Josh, you know, this is what I'm doing. It's, it's an educational compact, this product. Now, he had been the chairman and founder and CEO of Jupiter Communications. Mm -hmm. So he just started, like literally that week that I met him, he just got the confirmation to set up or just set up Jupiter Interactive, mm -hmm. which was supposed to be the interactive agency of Jupiter Communications. Mm -hmm. uh, the first funding came from Prodigy. And it was based on Josh's idea. So Josh had been writing about AOL Prodigy CompuServe as an analyst for research, research yeah. papers since 1992. He actually wrote the report. The 1992 AOL report put AOL on the map. Right. And the whole story, in a nutshell, was that 
AOL is a different kind of company because they're communications based versus um, CompuServe, which was dial-up interest. You know, their interest is dial-up. Prodigy's interest was shopping, mm-hmm. banking, travel. But AOL is different because AOL is a communication service. And in and of itself, he was right, mm-hmm. 100%. Josh pitched Prodigy Network to write a new chat software called Instant Messaging. Mm-hmm. So they greenlit it. A guy by the name of Scott Kern, who mm-hmm. I think went on to become the CEO of About.com. About com, yeah. Right. So Scott wrote us a check. And basically, Josh got the check, rented this 10,000-square-foot loft on the corner of Broadway and Houston. Just down the road. <laughs> yeah. So we had the first fish tank. I walked in with my business plan, like in a, in a horrible dot matrix printed out piece of junk where you have to pull the edges of the paper yeah, off yeah, that yeah. are perforated. Right, 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 right. And I said, Josh, this is my plan. I, maybe we can do something together. He read it and he said, what, do you want to make encyclopedias? Looks and get, he like threw it aside and said... Why don't you set up here? I'm making chat software. We'll do it. I'm like, okay. What the hell is chat software? Fine. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that time, we uh, Jacques Tege, he was an animator. But Josh had already been working this direction. He was actually working on virtual worlds and virtual avatars and a project called Launder My Head, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is very important. So he had this whole concept and background. Now, Josh is, was very forward thinking. Did he have an art background? No, he's right. a business okay. analyst. Right, right, right. And, and, and um, you know, he had a deep interest and passion for art because he felt that art, in his genius, he felt that art was the answer for his expression. Uh, little did he know he should have focused on business because he basically, through his analytical work, invented eBay, the auction platform. We, we built something called Betty, which never went live. Hmm. Uh, he d- defined what AOL was and became the number one mm-hmm. company in the world at the time. Right, and Jupiter is a su- successful company and as well. Jupiter is a hugely successful <laughs> yeah. analytics company. Uh, this multiplayer, multi-language, multi-user uh, world type of thing. He invented that. Mm-hmm. You, you know, fuck, you know, forget about like other. Uh, a virtual palace or whatever. Josh was already there with Launder My Head. He had rendered full-blown 3D animations to show his concept, and he pursued this all the way up until about 2009, mm-hmm. I believe. But yeah. we'll, that's another yeah, yeah, yeah. whole chapter. But uh, so anyway, coming into Josh's world, basically my deal was, you know, look, I uh, this is my company. I was planning to found this company. He's like, okay, what are your terms? And I'm like, I want 35% and I'll execute as, you know, vice president or executive producer. Push came to shove. I ended up with a piece of equity. At the end, it was around 12%. But I was the executive producer in charge of the pseudosphere. So it was chat plus all the kind of um, development around the chat, meaning chat management, administrator, chat groups. Uh, then all the content, bulletin board content, then mm-hmm. all of this, uh, all the, the concepts of the shows came from Pseudosphere, hmm. which was Pseudo 1.0, where we had live jazz poets uh-huh. doing animated 8-bit, 8K, uh, tiny little uh, 2400 baud friendly uh-huh. downloads to your Prodigy interface. And then you'd be able to enter into a chat room or a bulletin board based on that. 
Uh, we, we were big fans of multiplayer gaming, so we, we had Doom running 24-7. Mm-hmm. We actually built a huge Doom room mm-hmm. with gaming pods. Um, that was also part of the chat culture that we created. But basically, once chat went live, we were making more money than CBS per hour on Prodigy. Because Prodigy is giving you a cut of the hourly That's fees. right. We okay. were taking a royalty, uh, 30, 35%. 30% uh-huh. of 295 an hour. Right. Our billing was like 750,000 a month. Right. I had read that you guys are just printing money. Just printing <laughs> yeah, yeah. money and it was a great business. Because it becomes your chat your environment Correct. The, are, are the most popular part of the Prodigy most popular Factory. because okay. we produced it because mm-hmm. I sat there basically I went from working like, you know, 80 hours a week to like working 100 hours a week because basically uh what happened was once the chat rooms went live, they had to be monitored, administrated. We had tight, tight rules with Prodigy around protection. At the time, the other content streams that were out there were Usenet groups. Mm-hmm. And you can only imagine the horrors you would find <laughs> in Usenet, yeah. Suicide or Kitty, whatever. So we were monitoring all of right. that, making sure that this wasn't influencing... Is this... Because um, I've spoken about this before, how it's almost like AOL ate Prodigy's lunch because AOL was a little more loosey-goosey and right. Prodigy was so edit- like concerned about cleanliness and things That's like that. That's right. Well, you had IBM and Sears behind right. Prodigy and AOL developed around, no, we're, we're more like a phone company. We don't want to... We don't want to listen to what you're saying, but we want to facilitate this conversation. Right. Prodigy was saying, guys... You cannot do this on our network. You cannot have married and cheating rooms. You can't have like married by men or married by women or looking for this sort of thing. So, but we had hundreds of thousands of people at the time. So, right, was this an attempt by them to loosen up and go more in the AOL that's right? Direction? Okay. With that, uh, the CEO was removed. Ed Bennett came in as the new CEO of Prodigy, which was a massive. Uh, transaction in preparation for Prodigy to be sold by IBM and Sears. They had enough. Mm -hmm. And then Netscape came along (laughs) and just kicked and ate the lunch, basically, of, you know, Mosaic was there, but it wasn't really being used. Uh Netscape packaged it, packaged the browser. Netscape 1.0 opened up the, you know, graphical user interface to the World Wide Web, Uh and that was it. Everything had to change, and we had the vision we had everything kind of lined up immediately. So the first step, and this was a preparatory thing that Josh insisted on. So Josh's like meditation zone, and the reason why we, we worked together pretty well for like almost two years uh-huh. was because he would basically zone out into TV. He was a television addict, uh-huh. and he was a radio a- addict. He was kind of like, even though a very high-tech guy, he was very simple. And he would just listen to the radio and watch TV all day. And basically, you had to kind of like sit with him and he would come up with some idea mm-hmm. and be like, yeah, we got to fix this. You know, and I'm, this is, there's no drinking, no drugs involved in that conversation. This was like he was kind of coaching me hmm. as the executive producer, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I, at the same time, I was bringing in all this talent from these from the art world so mm-hmm. that was a great synergy so i'm the one that introduced all of the 
artist that eventually became part of Pseudo Radio, which mm -hmm. eventually became part of Pseudo Studios. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for me, uh, those days were pretty incredible. At the same time, Josh was adamantly against any kind of like official marketing. So Josh, is, Josh, Josh basically was called the brilliant PR weasel by one of the, one of the PR uh, agents, this woman, Lydia, she was fantastic. Uh, she, called, she called him the brilliant weasel because he knew through Jupiter, his work with Jupiter Communications, how to basically get the headline in every single move and angle of any technology, anything. He mm -hmm. was the go-to guy and he would always get his two cents in about what he's doing with mm -hmm. pseudo and and then pseudo we became pseudo programs probably like six months into the business mm -hmm. uh when we launched our pseudo chat we just officially became pseudo programs inc and uh, real quick I, I had read that the pseudo the name comes from minitel yeah so that okay. that was the whole thing that was another client france telecom by the way all of these companies uh -huh. would come and visit us and spend time in our offices it uh -huh. wasn't all just crazy artists uh -huh. we had france telecom we had the aol guys you know, we had uh, folks from Penthouse coming by constantly, people from all kinds of different corporate, you know, big, big media, NBC, ABC, not only news, but also the entertainment folks would, would come in. And we were kind of, you know, having these mixers constantly. And then they, the, 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 the epitome of it really was these parties we used to do. So I produced the first 18 parties. And that's probably what was my end. Um, so imagine this. Broadway in Houston. Right. Saturday night or Friday night with a line of 4,000 people trying to get into our parties from two entrances uh -huh. with fire trucks, police, you know, inspectors from every angle i'm like doing a tour of the fire safety we had fire retardant you know what let that. me let me let me lay the groundwork for this so so josh owns an entire floor of a, a 600 broadway 600 broadway so it's a huge building that's just a, a loft space giant empty dirty rotten okay. loft and he lives there but then also that's where the business is based yes okay so so we basically when when i we started the walls were crumbling and everything was crumbling so what we did was we re-sheetrocked everything mm -hmm. ourselves um, built Josh a room in the back with a hole with a shower, basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, just got operating like that, basically. And, and at first it was four of us, then six of us, then 50 of us. And then eventually you take over other we floors. Take over the, the, uh -huh. We took over the fifth floor. That place was a, a medical supply company that got uh -huh. raided by the postal guys one day. So one day at Pseudo, all of a sudden you got masked, armed police <laughs> with guns, postal police. Yeah. Running up the stairwalls, we're like, whoa. You know, people have the, are throwing their weed in the toilet and stuff like that. They're like, oh, no, 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 it's downstairs. <laughs> we're like, oh, is that floor available? We're like, sure. We call the landlord, book that floor. Yeah. So we had two floors, a fifth and sixth, and then eventually took over the third floor in that building. Um, but also in that building was Jeff Coons hmm. and Mark Costabi. So they would, like, Mark Costabi would stop by. We didn't really see Coons. I think his helpers were in that studio where yeah, he would yeah. make some artworks. But, uh, he was a two lead, but but really the first years were really about you know experimenting. But moreover, moreover, what uh -huh. was going on in the scene was this transformation from analog to digital. Uh -huh. So now you would drive around at night and see 
analog recording equipment sitting on the trash pile. Mm. And we would like be like, oh my God, let's grab that crazy mixing board and go up and try to connect it mm-hmm. to a computer mm. to record some freaky weird sounds right. that we would then amplify and take a, 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 very, a regular guitar um, a special effects mm-hmm. device with a microphone to a speaker uh-huh. and have it reverb and we started making right. drum and bass. Right, right, right. <laughs> right cause that's Nobody it. would know that that was being composed in real time. The rave scene is a, is a part the of the rave time. scene yeah, is yeah. booming, and we were in the middle of it. We were bringing the top DJs down. So, like, we were part of the electro culture I mentioned, yeah. but it was more like these different art groups and segments. So, you had like ambient, ilbient, then you had jungle, you had mm-hmm. drum and bass. Drum and bass yeah. Then we had glam rockers. Then we had all these kinds of like karaoke players, like Madonna night, and mm-hmm. and and we invited twenty five Madonnas to show up. And okay, you know what? Okay, I want to come back to the parties, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, I but can we can we get into what what you're develop what you're producing? You, you mentioned you're yeah, the producer. Sure. Okay, and I, and I even want to do this on on this level. So this is ninety four, ninety five. Right. Um, putting multimedia on the web in this era. Uh, is not really possible till what real audio comes. So along? real audio was the first instance that we we launched our with the launch of real real audio was the launch of pseudo dot com okay. as as we knew it as a radio internet radio station. Mm-hmm. Before that, we were recording on WEVD. We had an hour at eleven o'clock on Thursdays. Everybody would do a segment. We would all show up at the EVD studios on Broadway and Seventh. And uh, but we 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 had we got the rhythm going, mm-hmm. and then every all those again the spoken word artists mm-hmm. that were part of our in-house artist group were um, uh, the regulars. But that's where Josh and I started having a fallout because I, as a producer, was going celebrity and brand-driven. So I was brought in Fred from the B-52s. I had a celebrity booking agent mm-hmm. that brought all, Big Audio Dynamite and b- brought all these great people who were eager to get involved with the internet. And Josh was totally freaked out, like, oh, man, these guys aren't real artists. We're artists. They're not artists. They're, like, commercial. And I'm like, are you crazy? These people sell multi-platinum records. You don't sell any records, bro, you know? Well, so are these, if you have Fred from the B-52s come in, is it a show in the sense that, like, if I'm a, if I'm a user, I can, I'll know that tonight at 9 p.m. or That's something, right. I'll be able to hear Fred do whatever Fred's going to do for an hour. That's right. He, it was a talk show. So yeah. it was more talk show, the variety talk show. But it's also initially. artists performing. Right. And, okay. and bef- that was before we got into the little themes. Like, so then people would do a show called Cherry Bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, a girl named Janice Earlbaum would do that. Mm-hmm. And she's a great artist. And she would have her subjects, Cal, Judge Cal, who passed away would do his cow weird weird high weirdness and he was like hacker guy you know judge dread judge cow would uh-huh. call him you know was his tag you know so they would all have their shows but again that's where the fallout was i was on tour with metallica these guys were on tour with Tompkins square park mm. junkie artists and i wasn't i was just like you know different format for me so your your vision i hate this seems like a dumb word but is to you're, you're formatting essentially channels. That's Correct. what you want to do. Correct. And um, is the is the ultimate goal to to create a regular stable of shows? Yes. So the transformation from so so just to talk about what happened to the chat 
transforming, mm -hmm. getting okay. killed by yeah. the internet. So basically, within the f first three or four months of Netscape, basically, like 90, so Pr Prodigy started to compete with um, the dial-up business, which basically said, you just pay for connectivity now, and you don't pay for the Prodigy service anymore. So all of our three, three or two ninety-five right. an hour went away. Yeah, right away. That was the first instance. But the Prodigy service still existed, and we were still running the chats, and and the hours were incredible. But um, gradually, the first instance was uh, then the competition between the dial-up services. So then they started doing three months free, four months free, and they just sank themselves right into a hole. Mm -hmm. uh, AOL became the dominant player because they, they had the widest audience at the moment, so they survived versus CompuServe, and, and Prodigy, Prodigy eventually got sold mm -hmm. to Carlos Slim Halu, so we completely bailed out of that mess. Uh, so that must have been around 96. By, nine, by January, well, by December, I guess November, December 95, we already had about 12 areas of content development in play, including the shows. Mm -hmm. So we had all these performance artists. We were doing weird in installation art, like Romper Zoom. It was like an adult romper room type of show. Mm -hmm. Just experimental TV stuff. We had the guy who was a producer of Pee Wee Herman, Peter Rosenberg, stop by mm -hmm. and help us organize some things. And mm -hmm. then we had, so we were developing all these shows because Josh's idea was that we're like Disney. We're like Disney of the future. And we're going to have a studio and we're going to be producing all these micro brands and micro economies. I mean, I'm saying this now, but at the time we didn't know what a micro brand was and this sort of thing. We didn't know about user generated content, but that's really what it is. Right. And then he went on to do Operator 11, but that was after. But the point was here at Pseudo, um, <clears throat> The idea was to create a studio environment, to produce these micro brands, to reach out to audiences through PR and um, kind of this brand marketing, which was developed, really emanating out of our events and parties and so forth. But that, that was also a critical mistake because had we done traditional marketing, we would have been as big as broadcast.com was and sold for $5 billion early on. Okay, I was going to ask you. Uh is there anybody else doing stuff like this sure. at the time? So yeah. yeah, so you had Mark Cuban, sure. and uh, he just came out and basically uh, w very simple idea with Broadcast.com. I, I tell you the truth, I wasn't even familiar with any. He may have had a few small licenses to mainstream content. He would cut deals with with uh, individual radio um, That's stations. That's right, exactly. Right, to just broadcast their existing re exactly, yeah. which is what we what I was striving for. But Josh wanted to go with this original content creation me mechanism, which really requires a lot of babysitting, a lot of you know dispensable budget to experiment mm. with what's right and and a tremendous amount of marketing to build these brands you know it's like you're but cuban did the right thing he aggregated sold out the other side of it was this community of agencies that popped up like razorfish right. and then you had total new york which then became you know a day mm -hmm. company which he then sold to uh, another agency and you had these roll-ups happening in Manhattan, uh, you know, within um, another friend of ours, Mike Diamond, sold his web design company. And, you know, we had uh, others like Phil Kaplan had fucked company, right, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which was out there really stimulating a lot of the um, up and down side of the, of the Internet. So 
between news companies and and kind of like so oh and then ultimately you had this whole movement around irreverent first person narrative content so word.com came right. out uh-huh. and that's actually where i went to work after prodigy mm-hmm. uh, i went to work for icon which owned word.com which was a natural fit we invented the altoids at interstitial ad and it was mm-hmm. a big big hit where i worked with a guy named sean gold who's mm-hmm. a very successful uh digital marketer but you know uh that's the kind of community that had developed around that. Um, let me come back to two more things to, to give credit for, for the innovations is what I'm attempting to do here. So event, start out with streaming audio, but then when streaming video becomes available, you move into that as well. And because of your experience with the chat, if you have a show that's airing live, people can also be in the room chatting, correct. interacting with the, the performers, exactly. each other. Okay, that's correct. Descri- and, describe and that. And that all goes back to the multi-user shared media environment that Josh had invented with Launder My Head. Mm-hmm. His whole concept was the fact that you can enjoy a piece of media with your friends and communicate with them while you're having this moment together, mm-hmm. right? Because And his idea was people watching Gilligan's Island mm-hmm. could then talk about the in- subtle innuendos of what everybody's mm-hmm. what is what is the underground meaning of or the su- subtle meanings of, of everybody's action and the characters in Gilligan's Island that was his model and he showed that movie he showed that over we role played that laundered my head we put on costumes mm-hmm. and built mm-hmm. helmets mm-hmm. and walked around and did all that sort of stuff and uh, basically, it worked, and that's where we are today with all kinds of different second screen things, right. and all of that emulated, I think. But I'm going to point out that you guys are doing this in 1996, and this was 1996, yeah, right? Yeah. So, do you in 1996? Uh, do you have any ability to know how big the audience is? What sort of? Yeah. So we started. Well, that was that was part of the problem. A lot of mainstream branded content came into the market, which I think um, caused Pseudo to kind of fall behind mm-hmm. in terms of its unique users. Because the whole web was starting to get structured, especially around the advertising side of it. So you had metrics that needed to be followed. No one was paying attention. I left. I was the only guy that cared about that stuff. So mm-hmm. I would know how many chat rooms I have. I know how many simultaneous chats I had logged in, I'd know who's, you know, getting blocked, and, and, and if this, you know, I'd know everything, mm-hmm. basically. I was the god moderator, you know. But um, after a while, no one was paying attention to that, so they were focused on the art, and the art was just not a business at the time, and so just to, to, to uh, kind of put that into perspective, the behavior uh, was there at a core level. So, yeah, these shows uh, w- turned into video streams. The video studio was set up. It was kind of working. But, again, we got over, 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 stepped over by a lot of mainstream content and a lot of content aggregation. Even companies like Yahoo moved from search to content. Mm-hmm, right. So it was really hard to... Uh, you mentioned business and, uh, you know, even... Researching it now, it's somewhat unclear to me to what degree Pseudo has ever uh, ever attempted to be a real business. It sounds like that's what you were trying to do. Correct. Uh, were you trying to go after advertisers at some point? So I was trying to develop audience, uh-huh. and I was trying to develop a brand that had a following. And, and especially as the market evolved into this open standard internet mm-hmm. space from the closed 
uh, I didn't see any prospect for revenue other than sponsorship. So yellow, we got Yellow Pages. Yellow Pages sponsored us blindly <laughs> for like, but that was our first ad sale. Right. So we had Yellow Pages uh, marked. I mean, they came into the office because everyone would come and visit us. And I, I got, had a quick conversation with the guy in that city. He sent us a check for 25 grand. And every year we got a check or every, 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 every quarter or something we got a check for 25,000 from them we didn't really know what we were supposed to do with it but we put their little banner on our radio broadcast and um, you know that was it no one no one was looking after that but meanwhile in the rest of the economy was developing hard standards were happening with banner ad display advertising yeah IAB we, and stuff like that IAB was out there yeah. uh, you had um, you know, all the metrics from search and so forth, yeah. keyword marketing, yeah. nobody, that's yeah. all brand new. Then Google came along, right. of course, but, uh, you know, uh, that that was part of the problem with pseudo. There was no real uptick or, or stickiness with the audience, so the audience didn't grow. They kind of, they went elsewhere. All right, so then let's get back to the art and the parties. So yeah. you, you do mention that, that you, you say you, you produce the first dozen or whatever parties. Yeah. So what's the idea behind that? Is, so, is there a purpose to it or is yeah, this just, it was, okay? It was, it was really our form of brand marketing. So of creating PR, creating buzz, creating inf inviting influencers over mm -hmm. to see what we were doing who would then extend that out into their communities. So in New York, we were the hottest thing. Yeah. We were the hottest thing for the media industry, for the music industry, for the PR industry, for the news and tech industry. So we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles, hundreds of TV interviews. Uh, the idea was that we would throw parties around different technological concepts and also media concepts and also strange concepts that you would have associated with like a chat environment. So like, you know, this whole, like, one of Josh's ideas was let's do a pseudo-Madonna party. So we a fake Madonna party. So we invited 25 Madonna impersonators to perform. And all around her, all around them, there was a stage. And then all around them, there was all kinds of weird installations of different Madonna-related art and stuff. And we had um, live gaming. Uh, other ones, we did a party called Overstimulation, which was 24 hours of VR. This was in 1995, mm -hmm. before there was VR. We had VR pods in there with those giant helmets on, and you'd get the really polygon kind of weird yeah. uh, Dungeons and Dragons looking experiences. Um, and we had events around with Merce Cunningham, so mm -hmm. merging high culture, avant-garde, and digital was a great thing because that also brought us credibility. We had all the museum curators there. I remember meeting people from uh, from uh, all the foundations of New York, you know. So, and and we were again stimulating that, but we were also spreading the pseudo brand, and it became such a major event to be at. You know, it was the leading place to to go or to be seen, mm -hmm. and and just for that moment, so maybe. 1995, 96, those were the years of 94, 95, 96, where it was really just unbelievable. And then it, it all led, really, concluded with Josh's uh, underground experiment, but I'll let somebody else tell yeah, you about yeah. that because I wanted nothing to do with that. Right, yeah. I was already way out of that loop. Yeah, you, uh, you leave in 96. 96, uh, yeah. So... Uh, I went corporate. Right, and, and, and so maybe, uh, you, to the extent that you can comment on this... Um, 
afterwards to, to the in the into the height of the dot com bubble days, right. um, was there a sense that uh, the parties took over, took on a life of their own, and like what pseudo was trying to do sort of got lost in all of that? It got muddled because it hadn't grown. It became um, overwhelmed with Josh's ego and not his ideas. So everyone was a Josh pleaser. Mm -hmm. And I was the only one at the time, early on, that was like, no, we're not doing that. That's stupid. Mm. But everyone else was like, okay, Josh, okay, Josh. So you ended up with this bizarre freak show circus of different kinds of talent colliding, getting into fights. There was all kinds of artist problems, and, and these people were like mixing oil and water. Mm. Um, leading up to this, uh, the, you know, leading, well, so Josh basically ran the company into the ground. Mm. And the other part of the business problems from 96 to 99 was, quite frankly, the management that was brought in. So Intel and Microsoft and a few other major investors. Yeah. Uh, I think the total raise was like $32 million. Yeah. So wait, initially it's all funded by Josh himself. By Josh. And the prodigy money. The prodigy money and the revenue. Right, okay. And then, so then, because it is uh, the dot-com era, um, and you guys seem to be some of the pioneers in, in That's this. That's correct. In this field. So you're able to raise millions of dollars from people like yeah. Intel. So, so then, yeah, we hired an MBA, a guy named Tony Ansis came mm-hmm. in, and he took care of it. And then uh, I think, I forgot who the first funds were, but I think the first tranche was like $8 million. Then we did another $21 million, and those funds funded the expansion. So we also then expanded over to another address in Broadway, you know, I was out of the loop at that point. They also brought in uh, this guy, Larry, from National Geographic. I was against that. I was like, why do you have this guy here? And then John, John, Josh Borman, I guess his name was, from CNN. I'm like, why is he here? Right. And then, you know, I'm like, oh, we're covering the Democratic National Convention. I'm like, who the heck cares about this? I was in the background already. I, wasn't, mm-hmm. I was just... Kind of like trying to put my two cents in as a shareholder, but I had no intention of pursuing that stuff. So in the end, was it more, did it end up being more of a, a weird art project slash experiment than a business? Or yeah, did the uh, business get lost? Like what, in the end, what's the... Well, first of all, there was no audience. There wasn't enough users to support any mm-hmm. economic model. Mm-hmm. So there was no revenue, mm-hmm. zero. Because that was just completely overlooked. And unfortunately, you know, at the time, you know, metrics like viral growth and, and didn't really exist. But if Pseudo had 100 million followers, yeah, that would have been a business. But there mm-hmm. wasn't already right. when people were looking at those metrics. So there was no way the company could IPO. And right. we were the, one of the first ones to implode once the CSFB fraud thing started mm-hmm. and Pets.com realized you can't deliver an 80-pound bag of uh, f- dog food for 20 bucks. So, you, you know. know. It's funny. I just spoke to a founder of a different pets company, and he's insistent. He's like, that's a myth. That's a myth. We had that solved. It's a myth that you couldn't uh, uh, economically ship dog food. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's come to the realization that a lot of this hype was all hype. Mm-hmm. We got caught in the middle of that, so the exit for us was an IPO. I think uh, whether it was Deutsche Bank or somebody had us already mapped out for an IPO mm-hmm. with no revenue, mm-hmm. impossible. 
and that was what happened to pseudo it it fell by the wayside because it never worked on the audience and it wasn't that compelling compared to the other guys but at the same time even when you watch it implode is there still a sense in your mind that oh somebody's going to do what we were doing someday and make a lot of money yeah well exactly and it's called youtube yeah and it's called guys who knew what they who focused on audience who focused on high quality user generated you know, not even, didn't even focus on the, let the users generate themselves. That's what YouTube was really doing. Mm-hmm. You know, let people post whatever they want. Why do you have to try to direct people? People are okay. You know, they, all they need is a little simple mobile phone camera and they're done. Uh, Josh was trying to be the Walt Disney, trying to create this talent. It's not going to happen, especially with this group. And sorry, you're not a, you're not a Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. And you're not an Andy Warhol, you know. Mm-hmm. That whole art angle, I mean, I brought that. Mm-hmm. That was whole my mm-hmm. collective. And you could ask anybody that most people of that that became part of the stable of artists and mm-hmm. directors and producers were all people that I had brought in because I thought that they were important for the parties. But Josh felt that he can kind of control them and, and, and curate them and express his art you know I don't know what that's just a total downward spiral he was trying to be the the Warhol in the factory scene exactly but he was far from it he his paintings were like he would paint and they were the same quality as like Adolf Hitler or something you know (laughs) like horrible watercolor so we would be like yeah okay buddy you just stick you to your day job um you know but at the same time we had built a, a reputation and you know things had potential so, I mean, again, I was looking in from the outside already. Mm-hmm. I had my, my, my shares. My ending there was a political assassination. Mm-hmm. I was forced to resign. Mm-hmm. Forced to resign by a bunch of folks who were basically intimidated by my presence. because, And I was forced to resign by going to rehab because I mm-hmm. was completely shot at the time, too. So I admit that. I did, I did that on my own just to... Mm-hmm. For health purposes. Was there a big drugs culture in, in the company at that time? Well, I mean, Josh wasn't really a drug user, but uh, people, you know, used marijuana regularly mm-hmm. at, the, at, at, right. at the job. I didn't, you know, I'm no one to talk, but uh, uh, hard drugs, not necessarily, you know. It was more about, for me, I was frazzled just from the time and you know, drinking and, and, and late nights and long shifts and coke and whatever. Because I was doing the celebrity thing. I was yeah. walking around with the uh, raver gear and raver people and the whole spiel. So that was what was going on. A guy said to me once, I, I asked him the difference between East Coast tech and West Coast tech in the 90s. And he said, West Coast tech, there were no drugs. East Coast tech, there were drugs. It was all drugs, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there was a, a major drug scene. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was because of New York. New right. York is a major drug scene. Right, right. I mean, there's no way out of it. Um, but it was just. It was kind of embedded in our culture. So it was really no big deal. There's no difference of going to a, a party at an art gallery than coming to a tech office party where people were doing drugs, smoking mm-hmm. marijuana, yeah, or yeah, taking yeah. ecstasy or whatever, but or any club. But anyway, it really wasn't all about that. Um, to me, but at the end of the day, you know, that was one of, the, I was kind of like politically pushed out because the, all of those talent people thought that they can actually produce, but you'll see, the minute I left, mm-hmm. the company just went down into a... 
so I, I, I want to bring us up to the present day so we can end yeah. with, uh, with VR. So, um, but so uh, you, you say you go corporate. Um, are you involved in another um, dot-com company uh, towards the so, end of the 90s? So, yeah, so, so what happened was I went to Prodigy. Uh-huh. I sat it out for like six weeks until the end of the sale yeah. to, to internet, International Wireless. Once they took over, we left. I went to work for Icon CMT Car, and I became uh, ad sales director of um, Word.com. And then Icon was also the regional Sun Microsystems VAR, uh-huh. value-added resale. So I went through all my Sun enterprise training. So I started selling enterprise hmm. IT. Really and it was great. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then so I, I was in charge of the MPEG. So I was in, and what was great was at Pseudo, I made all the relationships at, at Viacom, MTV. Oh, right, Those yeah. were my clients. I sold the Economist Group their first servers, you know, web uh-huh. servers. Nobody knew what this was all about still in the corporate world. So I had that hands-on experience. Uh-huh. And I said, this is a web page. This is a server. You need a server. You need a router. You need an install. You need a yeah. connection. So... That was great. So I made a pretty good business out of selling to media, publishing, entertainment, and gaming companies because uh-huh. they were huge in New York. I then went into management and IT consulting. I built com- projects like the street.com, the content management mm-hmm, system. Mm-hmm, My mm-hmm. company was called Vision Consulting. Uh-huh. But all of these were more or less startups. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, you know, um, at, uh, well, Icon already was kind of a startup, which went public, when, which got bought by... Um, some huge phone company, I forgot, but, uh, you know, also then the other company was Vision Consulting, which was an Irish-based management company and IT consulting, so I opened their office. Then I went back to work on Wall Street, another startup, the Financial Commerce Network, then another one called Venture Highway. Venture Highway, right, right. That's right. So Venture Highway was uh, uh, an investor matching platform owned by a, a, a licensed NASD broker-dealer called Curlin Securities. Uh-huh. We raised $16 million there. That one got bubbled out hard. I think we had, um, we did one transaction before the, pl- <laughs> before the, we, would, we were supposed to receive another 27 or so million dollars. Sounds a little like angel list maybe. It's, it was an angel yeah. list, okay. but we were yeah. advertising on Bloomberg, uh-huh. attracting accredited investors for uh, interested in private uh, private equity. So. We had a great site. We got Forbes Best of the Web. So again, taking all those mm-hmm. kinds of principles and design and interactive multimedia carried me all the way into the corporate world from crazy pseudo. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, I was able to move on, and I, I worked on other projects. I uh, you launched a bunch of stuff in Russia. That's right. So I spent fourteen years in Russia. Wow. I uh, just actually got back in 20, 2014, uh-huh. roughly. Uh, well, I was married, uh-huh. so two years traveling and then 12 years living there consecutively. Mm-hmm. So there I was in, I was uh, director of global business development in charge of Russia and CIS for Yahoo mm-hmm. in a consulting capacity, but I was like the Russia guy. Mm-hmm. So I built Yahoo.ru. Uh, so I was in charge of product development, corporate development. We were trying to do mergers. For five years, I wrote a business plan every year, <laughs> estimating the cost of Yahoo's entry into the market, which then, by the time it got to like $600 million after Yandex's IPO, mm-hmm. it was too much. Project canceled. Uh, I went to then work for LG. I was the director of digital marketing at LG Ad, the internal um, agency. So I was there for like two and a half years. And then I moved back to the U.S., and started Space Out VR. Okay, so I, I want to learn about Space Out VR specifically, but I want you to tell me 
uh, VR is a thing now, right? It's a mega trend. Okay. And it, are we at the point of... So my, you're going to love my dorky point of reference. Um, handheld was going to be a thing forever, from the Newton through early Palm to... It, but it took till 2007 and sure. the iPhone for it to yeah. really... That's right. Where are we... How far away are we from the iPhone of VR? So the Newton of VR was in 1993 with okay. that experimental junk VR. Yeah. Today we're at the iPhone stage. Okay. Okay. Today we're in real time, high resolution, low latency, mobile console and PC based VR that is just absolutely mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge race to produce massive amounts of content and entertainment, games, productivity tools, telepresence, travel. There's just so many implications. <coughs> Sorry, I'm going to edit that out. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's wide open at this point. It's a wild west. It's like, a wild west. Who's going to create the VisiCalc for VR? Who's going to create the... Facebook for VR, this is all yes, still open. This is still open, still battling, um, still brewing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not even a battle yet. So, for example, we've been around for almost 22 months operationally. Mm. Uh, our company was originally called Daydream VR, mm -hmm. and we renamed to uh, Space Out VR. Um, we focused first on a very experimental, simple thing, which actually the interesting story about here is that these are three found the three main main founders are three pseudo guys so it's myself vo and bush and ignacio platas so ignacio or nacho had was part of an art group called la la landia owen and i started studied together at nyu so mm. he was film and media i was art history we knew each other i had brought so when i was doing the events I originally brought Owen in as, as a video DJ. Um, he then joined the company. Nacho came in with his partner, Gregor, DJ Olive, as a, as a DJ, music, uh, you know, ambient DJs and sculptors. They were part of this art collective called La La Landia, then the Institute. Mm -hmm. So these, there were these little collectives. So Nacho came, and then Nacho went on to work with Josh on Operator 11, mm. which is a whole entire other animal that Josh did in, in Los Angeles, which is right. still based on the original Wander My Head idea uh -huh. that's manifested <laughs> itself for 25 years. Yeah. So, uh, so that was, uh, yeah, that was it. Well, a, listen, a listener to, to this episode, um, if they want to check out Space Out VR, what, what do you want them to check out? So just, well, go to the website, download the app. The it's uh, spaceout.vr yeah. on iOS and Android. It's uh -huh. free. Uh, we ha it's a sociable, personified VR app. That's powered by artificial intelligence, which creates a personality profile based on your social graph, mm -hmm. which extracts keywords and has uh, then re makes content recommendations and populates your space station mm. based on your VR persona, hmm. which you then share with other people. Mm -hmm. You can leave comments. You can keep curating it. You can um, then also take part in our games. We have a teleportation system based on Google Street View VR, uh, a game called Headbangers, and a music virtualizer, and a Facebook photo browser. So these are all the core functions. So if we look back, we can look ahead. <laughs> because yeah, basically, yeah. VR is at the stage where it's now a full-blown megatrend. 
Two final questions. Almost 25 years after participating in your first startup, what is it like to be doing a startup now? It's great. <laughs> I, I um, Today, with all the experience, after 10 startups, after uh-huh. raising in excess of $50 million and still not having my unicorn billion dollar exit, uh-huh. um, I'm 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 enthusiastic. I'm I'm psyched. I'm pumped. So are my partners having fun. We're having so much fun. We, we get to wear all these little space buttons and stuff <laughs> like that. We talk to aliens uh, because we have a great brand, and it's it's just a lot of fun. And it's so great to see these next generation of like say our interns and young <laughs> young pro- programmers getting involved because you know we have a whole. Uh, our, intern program with RPI, mm-hmm. Rensselaer Polytechnic, and HVCC in Troy, New York, because we're part of Startup New York. So now we're using the government programs to actually develop startups. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing because they get it. They get it right away. They're like, oh man, this is cool. Like Snapchat, that was cool. Mm-hmm. That is their primary mm-hmm. platform. Look at the IPO. It's great. We see this as, as that next generation uh, when was the last time you heard from Josh? So, I, I, we, we pinged each other once. once I see him on, he's on Facebook all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, he does these little weird tripped out kind of uh, episodes. I don't know, they're kind of episodes of his crumbling deterioration of life, I guess, I think. Maybe he's, de- he's, he calls him, he's self-diagnosed psychologically impaired or something. But again, that's all in his head, I think. Um, He's living somewhere in Vegas in the Fremont District, mm-hmm. um, purposely, I think. Uh, he puts out these episodes that are kind of like him waiting on a bread line. All of a sudden, he got four aces or something. So I think he's just playing poker in Vegas mm. <laughs> full time. Mm. And I think everything else is just a hallucination. But he's available on Facebook. Josh Lovey Harris. Lovey, the, the character Lovey the that clown, he's been right. playing for. Which is, is a horrible <laughs> thing. But, but actually, he, again, tapped on another trend. Did you see the horrible clown? Yeah. The clown thing, that was Josh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? he, he's clearly tapped into the zeitgeist, or has been at various times. Yes, <laughs> very room, much, very much. In a profound way. Um, Dennis Adamo, thank you. Thanks for remembering all that. Um, thanks for uh, helping me. Uh, keep the, the, the dream of pseudo alive <laughs> into new generations. But also thanks for um, sharing um, a really interesting career. Thank you. Appreciate it. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out rate and review us on iTunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings and the more great reviews we get the more people will discover us as always there's more info on our website www.internethistorypodcast.com the show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc thanks for listening